0: You're listening to the Arts Fuse Presents, the Short Fuse Podcast. I am your host, Deanna Costa. Join me on an auditory exploration of our independent mag on the show where we bring you the latest and greatest from our arts criticism community. On today's episode, we'll be featuring and speaking with a fantastic author. I don't want to give too much of a uh, preview on this one because I think that Felicia and I do a great job of that. But a quick word on the uh, current state of the world as uh, last last installment was pre-recorded. And uh, before that recording took place, everything was at least relatively normal. And now uh, seems like pretty much nothing is normal anymore, um, although I guess that is a construct in and of itself. but, Apologies in advance if the quality varies in this episode, as many uh, shows of various media are. We are working from home and um, trying to be safe. The gracious Somerville Media Center that we typically use is closed, so this is a bit of a home setup right now, not necessarily professional equipment. But without further ado... Here is Felicia and I discussing her new book, which was printed by the Harvard Press. And you can pick it up where any books are available now. I believe Amazon is also carrying it. Barnes & Noble, all those classic-like. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. And if you feel like you need a friend... We'll have the email address in the end of the episode, just as we always do. Feel free to reach out. All right. Well, hi, everyone. I would like to introduce to you a guest coming in virtually all the way from San Francisco, and we're very excited about it. Just in time, uh, the very tail end of Women's History Month, too. So it's pretty cool to have a female guest on the show. Uh, weirdly enough, being a, um, a female host, it seems like, now that I think about it, we have a very male-dominated content. So <laughs> this is very well-timed. <laughs> um, but anyway, the author, and please tell me if I mispronounce your name, is Felicia aneha Viator?":
1: Yeah, yeah, Felicia and but But and, and It's a tough one, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, and your book is To Live and Defy in LA, How Gangster Rap Changed America, which is a hefty title and doesn't really need much introduction. So mm-hmm. if you would like to take it away and tell us more about yourself and your background and how this book came to be, that would be awesome.
1: Sure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. I appreciate the attention to um to this project. It's uh, it's been interesting trying to promote it um with the news as it is. I mean, you know, right. Um, <laughs> but there is something. You know, maybe we'll talk about it. But there is something kind of interesting about pop culture in times of crisis that the book addresses. So I've been thinking a lot about crisis. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I, I teach at San Francisco State University, um, Bay Area born and bred. Um, so yeah. And, um, I spent part of the nineties and the aughts as a DJ actually, uh, in the Bay Area hip hop scene. Um, and then eventually became an academic. So, you know, sort of, um, very different, career paths at different points. In yeah. life. Um, but connected and you know, ultimately connected in this book, you know, my, um, perspective on the DJ scene and on entertaining and, um, thinking about music helped me to write this book with, um, I hope, you know, a certain level of authority, um, about music culture and about some of these, the economy of things like the mobile DJ scene and, um, mixtape culture, uh, but yeah, um, it's a book that's ultimately to live and Defy in L.A. You know, you're right. That title is is intense. Yeah,
0: <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, a great way.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's based in part. Um, it's inspired by this the the title of a of a 1980s L.A. F- a film about L.A. called To L- To Live and Die in L.A. Um, right. But there's also the Tupac song. Um, that's a reference to. Um, but, and it is a book about LA. It's a book about the eighties, but it's also a story about, um, about, uh, American culture generally and how things really changed dramatically in lots of different ways during this period and, and, and why LA is so important. Um, a part of that story. Um, yeah, you asked how I, <laughs> how I got here. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's funny cause you know, I have a lot of friends that, that, know me originally as a dj um and Mm -hmm. were kind of surprised that I wrote a book (laughs) (laughs) Um, in djing was such a big part of my life uh it never was a career path though it was kind of just this way for me to explore who I was and and um help me pay rent (laughs) ultimately Um, and I was just so deep into music uh as a teenager and then when I was in college and so um, finding my way into the DJ scene, working as a DJ in the Bay, um, really allowed me to solidify my role inside uh, a hip-hop scene, which at the time was um, predominantly male. I mean, in terms of the DJ scene, right. I mean, right. we're all male. Um, speaking of Women's History Month, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to mention that, too. Yeah, I mean, I it was a scene in the 90s that, that um, didn't tend to, to see women as knowledgeable or as truly invested, mm-hmm. in the, right? So, um, you know, once I was part of that scene, it was really important to me. And I was conscious of the fact that as a DJ in this virtually all-male world, that I was breaking down some barriers for other women who would come after me. So, um, and I was deeply influenced by one of the few other women DJs in the scene at the time, this woman, Pam, Pam the Functress. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, she was part of a, of a Bay Area rap group called The Coup. Um, and she was also a club DJ. And I just was so um, obsessed with what she was doing, because it was just so rare to see a woman in that context. Um, and so, you know, that that was a big part of my inspiration. Um, and then, I mean, I was studying history in college at the same time, and then uh, I see, and wanted to go to grad school. And um, so the DJ thing wasn't a long term career plan for me. But the two things did overlap just because like, I was so interested in history and so interested Mm in music that I was reading a lot about the history of music, including the history of rap, right? There wasn't a lot of stuff in the nineties about hip hop, but I was reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, and I was just kind of underwhelmed, you know, honestly, um, in terms of what, especially in terms of what I could find, the little I could find that had been written about West Mm Coast hip hop was just um, not satisfying. Like it didn't get into the nitty gritty. It didn't sort of explain if or why this stuff was meaningful historically. And so I just, maybe as a historian, um, I could dig in and um, say something about the music that um, hadn't yet been said. So, you know, it wasn't the perfect, (laughs) the most like logical transition from being an entertainer, essentially, to being um, a mm. professor but, uh, but, you know, here I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> honestly an amazing story, and um, it's funny, too, because I think your story coming on to this show is, like, the perfect place to be, <laughs> because <laughs> I also uh, DJed while I was still oh. in college, And, um, I was more a radio DJ though. I did a few live events, but I mostly stuck to on air and, um, I interned at local radio stations to my hometown, which is in upstate New York. So it's really fascinating for me to hear how your life kind of, you know, had its bends and turns because mine has been sort of similar. (laughs) Like I also minored in, um, in history in school majored in journalism. So it's, makes sense why I'm here in this sense but um, I don't work full-time in history or journalism or uh, academics but I am going back to school very soon to uh, Emerson College here in Boston and um, I think it's funny because going from the journalism history education that I have transitioning now into a master's program that's all focused on publishing and writing. Um, There's there's a lot of people I've seen on the accepted students pages that are really excited to talk about what kind of books they would look forward to publishing. And I am like not amongst any of those folks. (laughs) I'm like more in the magazine side of life. And it's because I like music. And so like, I totally hear what you're saying about how a sort of like historical analytical point of view, like to live and defy in LA projects, it it is severely lacking in a lot of senses, I think, when you start talking about academic musical writing, because you do have such a real world experience with the content that you're writing about. It's clear that you aren't just coming from a either a historical or analytical point of view like you have sympathy for all the people that you're writing about you understand their entire situation it's not just kind of like you know oh this is uh this is like a sociology paper and I don't really know these people or their experience like you you were definitely on the cusp of that
1: I that's that's so kind of you I um (laughs) it's funny that you say that you know you you aren't in the category of you know other people who are thinking about what book what books they're gonna write that you you know you think about journalism and I'm it's funny like I'm a historian and of course you know had been working on this book forever but I always wanted to um I think I just I was um Dreaming of being a journalist, honestly. I mean, I like I. I think I read far more journalism than I do academic writing. I, you know, Mm I lean toward it. I, I enjoy it. I mean, I think the thing that frustrated me about a lot of what had been written about hip hop for the first decade or so of you know that that field called hip hop scholarship was that a lot of it was just not um easy to read. And I and I don't in the sense that like it it like I it wasn't hard to understand it was just not not it it made you not uh, it almost made the music seem boring yeah <laughs> no I get what you, you mean sucked the life out of uh out of the music that we all felt was so dynamic and so powerful and so, so um amazing. and so unique and I just was consistently frustrated with that and um and one of the ways that I pitched this book to my editor at, at Harvard was to say that, like look, like there's a lot of hip hop there's a lot of hip hop scholarship out there, but this is not hip hop scholarship like this is mm-hmm. some this is basically a story um about rap and about the people making it that um you know I think hasn't yet been told, and I think you n- need to be told in a way that um feels meaningful and yeah, you know that that people can um." That that's aimed at a general audience, you know that yeah. um, is enjoyable to read, and that also you know isn't just like a good story to read, but that's also well researched and um, and is is trying to explain what's historically significant about this stuff. So, you know, I I want to be you, <laughs> you know, journalist. <what> <laughs> I, I yeah. an and I think that that's kind of always what I've dreamed, um, how I wanted my voice to sound in my writing. Um, you know, I I didn't want it, my stuff to be sort of um, uh, assessed or pinned as like academic writing. Mm-hmm. Me, that's almost like an epithet.
0: <laughs> yeah, in a way. I mean, I think um you are uh, also a professor too, right? Or an assistant professor. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So I I'm sure that whether it comes out in conversation with students or in um you know your reviews and things that you can get a sense for a reading that students really responded to versus a reading that they were like oh god I, I really trudged through that why did you assign this to me of mediums that you were looking at and I think that made it much more dynamic
1: thank you yeah I'm I mean you yes I think you you hit upon something that um is important about the work is that I you know I do depend a lot on journalism in this um Mm -hmm. in this book um Uh, there are so many different journalists. There's a guy named Jonathan gold who's passed away recently, who wrote for the um, LA weekly, who um, was like a food writer, but then had some of the most interesting coverage of NWA in the Mm -hmm. 19th. And, um, you know, and there's just, you know, uh, uh, So the village voice and of course I, you know, I, I cite um, lots in the LA weekly and the LA times and, um, and the black press is very, very important in the book. Right. Um, But yeah, and I, I used a lot of journalism. I also used a lot of oral histories. Um, I did some interviews myself and, you know, of some of the people in the book, like Egyptian lover, who's that DJ and recording artist, Right. My mobile scene. Um, I had the privilege of talking to, to Greg Mack who's, of course, the music director, was the music director of Arcade A. Mm-hmm. Play. Um, and I use, I, I mean, for a book about rap, I think people expect that it's going to be based largely on interviews with the artists. Um, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the books out there right now about rap um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: have, um, are, are a lot of them are written by journalists who, you know, are, are using, um, There're uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of different interviews that they've conducted. Yeah. Um, and my, you know, my approach to the information gathering process was a little different. Um, I was using things like the Tom Bradley papers and, um, you know, the the records of the, the of Kappa, the Coalition Against Police Abuse, right. and um, things like, uh, you know, a lot of photographs, a lot of uh, a lot of visual sources. So. Um, I mean, it's it's important for me to use a wide variety of sources, not just journalism, but all these other things in order to mm. fully flesh out these characters in order to kind of understand not just like what people are saying now about what happened then, but also right. figure out, you know, how um, they're, you know, how who they are and, and their perspectives on these things change over time. And you can't really mm-hmm. get at that by just interviewing people now, um, you, you really have to dig a little deeper um, and try to figure out the historical context by looking at so many different kinds of sources. So yeah, the information, information gathering process was um, a real adventure and took me to some fantastic archives and libraries. Um, and I got to work with you know, incredibly smart and patient librarians, <laughs> um, so who were just like fascinated and kind of bewildered by you know the topic of the, right. of, but um, but yeah, it was fun. And I spent a lot of time in L.A., which um, you know I'm from the Bay, and people always kind of think like it's it's strange that I'm that I ended up writing about L.A. being from the Bay, but um, but I really grew uh, to love L.A. and um, appreciate how. Uh, different it is from the bay but there's also th- these really interesting connections between the bay and LA that I that I got to um you know that I could see up close um, right. so it was uh, it was a fun process i i really enjoyed that process probably probably my favorite part of the process of of writing a book like this yeah
0: it was really really great to read uh, this particular history as someone that has a very um interloper point of view of California in general and I felt like I I got uh, a bit more of what LA is
1: really like and the full picture. The concept of gangster rap um has faded I mean I think that label is no longer acceptable um Mm -hmm. even to even for those rappers who, um, whose sound is very much connected or who, you know, sort of the themes are right. are really reminiscent of the stuff that I'm talking about. Uh, I, you know, even, even you know, guys like Dre and Ice Cube rejected that phrase um, right. in the early 90s. Um, you know, they saw it as something that the media created, and then they tended to prefer things like reality rap, for instance. Um, right,
0: which it does have a very different connotation.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I even think that term in a way is, um, is a little bit performative. Like, I think even the term reality rap is a way to say, like, look, you know, it's kind of like reality TV. Like, it's a way of saying, right. like, like, we're, we're doing something that um, we know is going to fascinate you. We know that, you know, the public is kind of like, going to rubberneck neck.
0: Mm-hmm. The-
1: and um, we're getting your attention, and it is based on things that are really happening. But there's also some fiction in there. There's also some exaggeration. There's some artifice. Um, there are other things going on. It's not just like this pure, undistilled truth, right? right. It's
0: not journalism. <laughs> right. it's, it's art, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that I think what does stay pretty consistent in in hip hop and in rap music now is that there's, I think. This lingering um, stand, the standard that the public and fans and critics continue to have for rap music is to say that, like, you know, oh, it needs to be truthful. Like, it needs, like, right. not real hardcore rap if it's not really representing what's happening um, in the street. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that view is is um, is it's pretty ignorant actually of of what the music actually is doing and what these artists were doing and i think the story that i'm trying to tell is to explain that they are artists they are sort of around with truth they're playing around with fantasy they're playing around with these things that they're experiencing in part because they want to express some very important perspectives that aren't being um acknowledged. Um, but at the same time, they're also trying to do something to get the public's attention and they're trying to make music that's going to cross over. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that is a legacy that, um, I see at least in contemporary rap that, um, especially in contemporary LA rap where, um, you know, somebody like Roddy Rich is doing a lot of the same things that, um, that guys like the, you know, that, that NWA was doing in the late, late eighties there you know there there's stuff in there about conspicuous consumption there's stuff in there that's challenging white supremacy there's stuff in there that's referencing um you know referencing cops and racial profiling and Mm -hmm. um so and it's it's braggadocio it's bold it's um you know it it's shocking to a certain degree and it's not intended white audience like it right (laughs) <laughs> Among, right. but it's not intended for that audience and yet it still is like hugely popular right which is what's really unique about this music um and I think something that we take for granted is that hip-hop was not supposed to survive past the 80s I mean critics right it's just gonna fade like disco yep um but these guys were doing something That was really for them, and ultimately they figured out how to continue to do that and not compromise, like not whiten up, not soften up. Yeah, yeah. That's what crosses over. That's how they cross over and become mainstream. Um, And that's like what rap is—is like you know the the sort of the the product of that period. And it should surprise us all, really, that that is what crosses over. And that's ultimately what um, pervades pop music and, and American yeah. culture generally. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, I know. I feel like there were so many really great points to everything you just said. <laughs> because um, the, the biggest thing that stands out to me is kind of also circling back to a point you made in the book about how um, the early days it was so intertwined with youth culture Mm -hmm. and, of course, African-American youth culture in particular. But over time now, I feel like you couldn't really say that rap is still a young person's genre. Mm. Because, I mean, if you think about it, someone that was, um, you know, 18 in nineteen eighty right that's add 40 years so they're almost 60 yeah. now so
1: that's <laughs> right.
0: yeah. if, if you you know if you were into something when you're young I'm not obviously pushing 60 but I would assume there's certain things in life that you know interests last forever and right. tastes that last forever so there's a whole older generation now that still consumes rap and that raised their kids on it. Like I grew up with the. It, it's also funny too that you were saying about um, how you were basically having your DJ career beginnings, and you were in college in the early '90s. Because I think, not to um, date or insult you, but I think that put you <laughs> as like the same age as my mom.
1: Okay. And, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. So, so I was born in '96, and um, I I was like. I feel like I grew up in an incredible time for hip hop because the the music of the late 90s and the 2000s is just like, I, I, maybe I'm probably biased because it's nostalgic to me, but it's like the absolute best. Like 2000s R&B or like 90s like slow jams or like the really hardcore rap, like everything in between yeah it's just amazing (laughs) and so I grew up with all of it being on the radio like you you can't really normalize it much more than that so uh, I but at the same time I do also remember um, stories that my aunts would tell me about how they don't mind me listening to rap because they remember um, my grandfather breaking their like uh, CDs of the chronic <laughs> like stuff
1: like that so right. <laughs> they're
0: like we're not gonna censor you
1: which yeah. is another thing yeah yeah. Like I, the, the, it's, uh, that's, I love that you said that because um, that the late 90s and the early aughts like you remember fondly because it's it's interesting to me thinking about how you know <sighs> Th- there was this idea that that hip hop had lost its way at that th- during that period that you're talking about. Right. I like, because it was so big and because it had become so commercial and that commercial seemed to like be the thing that hip hop wasn't supposed to be. Right. Um, and so you do have a lot of like those early old school fans that, um, that felt like hip hop had had, you know, Was dying essentially,
0: and my definitely
1: did. Yeah, I was a DJ during that period, and my perspective on it was like, this is really, you know, this is um this is a renaissance in a way. Like hip hop is blowing up, and it's yeah, like it is in everything. Everything you hear, you hear like um the influence of of Dre's production. Like you hear Mm -hmm. um you know you're you're hearing that 808. You're hearing um you know the themes and sort of thinking about hip hop in terms of style—it's—it's—it's it's, it's mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, and for me, it was really exciting and it felt right. But for other folks that didn't want hip hop to change that way, it seemed—it—it um, it didn't seem like a good thing. Um, and now, you know, now me being where I am and and having a hard time like keeping up with how quickly and rapidly rap music changes like, That's true. I, like I'm resolved to that like I'm okay being in a position in my life where like um I'm just not <laughs> keeping up with yeah much as I you know I would have when I was 18.
0: Right especially being I, a DJ. Yeah yeah,
1: yeah. I, mean, I I find things that I really like um, I listen to a lot of soul and R&B. Like I, you know, like Frank Ocean is one of my favorite artists and he's not doing anything right now, but like when he came out and he had his own mixtape, I was just like, this is the best thing ever.
0: Yeah. He's incredible.
1: Yeah. Or like Anderson pack is like, mm-hmm. I love, love, love. But, um, but I, you know, I, I think it just changes so rapidly that those of us that, you know, grew up with it and feel a connection to it um almost feel like we're left out and so yeah. for some people that's hard to accept that it's just changing in a way that um is not for them anymore mm-hmm. uh, and for me I'm like that's just that's what it is that's what hip-hop does like it changes it consistently changes and evolves and morphs and um and it's not for us <laughs>
0: yeah, it's true. yeah yeah and that that's that. Well, that was the short of it. If you'd like to read more by our incredible contributors, you can find us online at artsfuse.org. If you're looking for more pod content, you can check us out on our socials. We have the Short Fuse Podcast Facebook, Twitter at the Short Fuse Pod, the Short Fuse Podcast Patreon, which on a note about the Patreon, uh, we have recently revamped it and we have created... Three separate tiers, starting from $4.99 to $9.99. I really would encourage you to go check out those varying levels and the uh, perks that you get with those. The base level across the board, everyone will get access to the show early if you subscribe. You will also get special content that is only available to patrons pretty exciting. I'm not going to give away what because I want you to go check out that website. Um, If you're not interested in that, that's just fine. If you want to just listen to us, that's much appreciated too. You can find us on Simplecast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you're listening right now. Um, Once again, folks, you can reach out to us at the shortfusepodcast at gmail.com If you have any questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, or you just need somebody to talk to about this weird and wild time that we're currently living in, I know that I've had to lean on just about everybody I possibly could, so um, we're happy to be that person for you. Thanks again, everyone. Stay safe out there, stay healthy, and we will speak with you.